Father, thank you um, for being good and for loving us and for caring for us. Father, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, to die for our sins. Um, raised from the dead to give us hope. Father and Jesus, thank you so much for sending your Holy Spirit to us to encourage us, to give us wisdom, to help us to understand what to do. And tonight we ask that you would give us insight, that you would give us courage to believe what's true and to cast out uh, what is false, to not get caught up in the way things are said or or how uh, they might feel, but just Help us to hold on to what's true tonight and, and to push aside what's false. And I ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, we've been in a series on healing for a while, and we're actually finishing up that series in a couple weeks. Um, and then we're going to be in the book of Acts. Um, when we talk about healing, what we're saying is that we're talking about healing of the body. We're talking about healing of our soul or our personality. Um, we're talking about healing emotionally. Just We all know that we struggle with our emotions, with anger, with lots of different things, so we need healing for our emotions. And also, um, we're talking about healing for our mind, the way we think, the way we process things, that we need healing in all those ways. And so we've been watching Jesus uh, in the Gospels and how He approaches people and how He heals people in order for us to get kind of a sense of how we can offer healing, but also then to respond the way the people who are healed respond, to kind of get a, a sense of that. Now, um, part of the reason that we've been going through a series on healing is simply because we have this, this line that we say all the time about the village, and that is that we're healing the city one person at a time. And the way we kind of see that happening is that we believe that if we gather around Jesus as a community, um, that healing happens. If we commit as a community to focus on Jesus, then healing happens. And um, the last last week, I kind of gave you a, a thing that you could hold on to as to what healing really was or how you offer healing. And that is that you offer healing through blessing. Um, that the way people are healed is to experience the blessing of Jesus. And so I said there are three ways that you can bless someone or someone is blessed. The first one is seeing somebody. Really seeing somebody. In a culture where um, we, we tend to objectify people, we tend to see people as a means to something else, um, really blessing someone is restoring the image of God to them. In Genesis chapter 1, which is the first book of the Bible, verse 27 it says that God created humanity in His own image. That means that we bear His image. And at the end of that chapter, chapter 1, He says that all of it is good. So when you and I recognize someone as bearing the image of God and treating them with that kind of dignity, then we, we are restoring somebody's humanity. We're, we're, we're giving them um, what, they, what they're supposed to have, the honor of being created in God's image. Um, the second way I said was knowing. That you need to know somebody's story. That's how you can bless them, is to know their story. Um, to know what makes them tick. Why do they do what they do? Those kinds of things. Why do they have that annoying habit? Those kinds of things. But what's really interesting about knowing somebody's story and 
here at the village, I mean, as you can see, we listen to Corey's story. We really believe that stories are important. Knowing people's journey is important. But even here at the village, I've noticed that when we sit around and tell stories, what happens is one person tells a story and then another person immediately is trying to tell a similar story. And that really, what that does is actually isn't knowing the original person who's telling the story. Because you really aren't finding out about what really happened and all the little events that they're telling. You're just thinking about your own story and how it relates because you want to be known. And which is really good, but part of the way we heal people when we offer blessing to one another is to really listen to what people are saying and asking them really good questions. So the next time you hear somebody telling a story to you, instead of thinking, oh yeah, I want to tell a story when I went to Chicago or whatever, think, man, I wonder what question I could ask to hear a little bit more about that, to find out a little bit more about those things. So part of knowing someone is really letting their, kind of helping them develop their story as they tell it so that they can really feel like somebody actually cares and to know that somebody actually cares. Um, and then the last way, and the one we're going to talk about a little bit tonight um, in offering healing through blessing, is that it, part of it is calling somebody out. So you see someone, you know someone, and then you actually call them out. You say who they are in the kingdom of God. You really tell them how you experience them. You, you tell them what you see is good in them. You're willing to take a risk and, and maybe narrate a little bit of their life for them. And so that they kind of can have a sense of who they are. And so we're, we're going to talk about that for a while. But before we, before we get there, last week what I said was one of the things that gets in the way of you and I effectively seeing and knowing and calling people out is that in Matthew chapter 7, verse 3, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he tells them, that you're spending all this time trying to get the speck out of your friend's eye or your the people around you's eye, and all the time you've got this gigantic log in your own eye. And so you're really unable to offer any kind of healing from Jesus or any kind of blessing because you're so kind of blinded to what's really going on with other people because of your own log in your own eye. And what I told you that log is, I kind of illustrated that with a very ancient story um, from the Tower of Babel, which is in Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, humanity has gotten to a point where they say, you know what, let's, let's build a gigantic tower. Um, it's actually Genesis chapter 11. But anyway, they build, a, they build a tower. And they say, we want to build this tower because we want to be important. We want to build, make a name for ourselves. Um, and so that, the first thing um, that you and I... I mean, this is a good thing, a good thing to want to make a name for yourself. But the other thing that these uh, humanity said was, let's, let's not only do that, but let's kind of make a city around the tower. Let's, let's be safe. We don't want to be scattered. And in that idea of a tower and staying close to the tower and staying close together, um, two ideas kind of lay out. One is that all of us want to be important. We want to be significant in some way. And all of us want to have safety or security. Or you could think about it, all of us want to have impact on the world and all of us want to be loved. And those are really good longings. And early on in humanity, those longings were there. But the problem is, is that what you and I do is instead of allowing God saying, you, are an, you bear my image and that's what makes you important and that's what makes you loved, what we say is, no, 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 I have to figure out how I can be significant and safe. I, can, I want to see how I can be important and loved. I have to do this 
on my own. And so for people like us who are on the other side of the cross, right, where the God of the universe came down and died for our sins, the God of the universe became a man, became a servant, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead. He paid the ultimate price. We look at that and we say, no, 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 that's not enough for us to say that we're significant and that we're loved. But in reality, the cross says, no, 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 everybody, hey, you are significant and you are loved because I died for you. Right? So that's the log in our eyes that you and I take hold of our importance and our need for love. And we try to get it in a whole bunch of ways. And so instead of finding it in Jesus, we find it in a lot of other things and it's very difficult for us then to see other people. Right? To, to actually see what's going on with them and offer them healing. And so... What I said last week was, as you wrestle with those, and as you're able to focus on the cross, um, we began to talk a little bit, okay, if, if I do find my significance and my security in Jesus, then how do I go about blessing? And we looked at Abraham. Um, and Paul in Galatians tells us that if you are someone who heard the gospel and believed, then you are a grandchild of Abraham. Now Abraham's a really old guy and Abraham heard a call from God and he believed. And so you and I become Abraham's spiritual um, grandchildren um, because we're like him. We heard and we believed if you're a follower of Jesus. And so we received the blessing that was given to Abraham. So if Abraham then was our great-great-grandfather, then last week I said maybe we ought to look at his story a little bit. And so we looked at Genesis chapter 12 and um, in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham out of his nation, out of his people, out of his family, and he says, go to a land that I'll show you. And in that land, I am going to make you a great nation and bless you and give you a great name. And out of that, you're going to bless other people. And Abraham said, awesome, let's do it. So he got everybody and they left. So who knows where in his mind? He doesn't know where they're going. And that little point of faith is what, when you and I have that kind of faith in Jesus, we inherit the blessing of Abraham. Now, Abraham's story, um, if, if the legacy of Abraham is blessing, then we ought to look more and more at Abraham's story to kind of figure out how it is that you and I might imitate Abraham and bless other people and offer the healing of Jesus. So we kind of need to look more at Abraham's story. So we're going to go to Genesis chapter um, 16. If you want to grab your Bible, it's on page 33 in one of these black Bibles, but Genesis chapter 16. This happens about 10 years after Abraham has been called to go to a land that he doesn't know, and he leaves. Chapter 16. It says, Now Sarai... Abram's, and this is his name before it's changed to Abraham, Abram's wife had bore him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Cana ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be 
with his wife. She slept, he slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is your in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Last week we talked about a verse in Corinthians, which is in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, verse 17. And the basic gist of this verse is that anyone who's in Christ is a new creature, and that the old is gone and the new has come. So if you are in Christ, then you are no longer, um, you're no longer, the old is no longer there. The new has come. But literally in the Greek it means, it says the old is going and has gone, and the new has come and is coming. So there's a process in the moment of the new coming in you, and there's a process in the moment of the old going. But in Jesus, the old is gone and the new is coming. God's reality, He looks at you, and you are no longer the old, but you're the new. Now, most of us know the reality of struggling between the good and evil in us. And in some ways, you can think of it as living in two different stories. And all of us live in two different stories. And these stories are influenced by different kinds of narratives. So let me kind of explain how this works, and then we'll kind of look at this from this perspective on this passage. So when I was a kid, and I'll try to make this short, I lived in Indiana for a while, in my sixth grade year. And Indiana is a basketball um, state, and I was a soccer player. So I played soccer from kindergarten to sixth grade, and I get to Indiana and you got to play basketball. And it's kind of crazy in Indiana. In the sixth grade, the second team has cheerleaders and it's packed out. Okay, so basketball's big in Indiana. But I still played soccer. And I began to learn how to play basketball and get better at it. And I, I we were headed to uh, North Carolina in my seventh grade year, and I thought, I'm pretty good at basketball. I'm, I'm pretty good at this. I mean, I'm, I've been in Indiana. I can shoot. I got, I'm got. i pretty good. So I get to the seventh grade, and the first day of seventh grade, I hear kind of this talk going around. And you have to understand, I moved from an all-white school to a 70% black school in North Carolina. And I had all this talk going on about these three seventh graders who can dunk the basketball. And so immediately I remember in the first day walking in the hallway thinking, I'm not going to be playing basketball. That's that's not going to happen. There isn't going to be any kind of basketball playing because I can't even jump. So PE happens. I'm a soccer player. And i got to understand something in North Carolina. Nobody plays soccer in the middle of the 80s. right? Soccer is not a sport in, in North Carolina. So... PE, we're playing soccer, and there's, you know, like 20 kids, and I've been playing soccer since, you know, I can start walking. So I'm just basically dribbling the ball around, and nobody can get it from me because they don't know what to do, and I've been dribbling the ball forever. So it just happened that the PE coach happened to be the soccer coach. And he's like, you need to try out for soccer because you'll be the best player because nobody knows how to play soccer. Um, So I said, all right, so I'll try out. Now, most of my experiences in school have been in a little tiny, in little tiny schools. In North Carolina, this is a big middle, or big junior high. And so I have to go to the physical. Now most of the physicals that I went to, um, would just go to the doctor. 
You know, you get your physical as a kid. But this one, you had to have a school physical. So this is the way my seventh grade mind remembers this. I go into the locker room and they make you strip down into your underwear and I'm in a long line of little boys in their underwear with a sweaty doctor somewhere over in the urinal area going next. Only I'm not, I haven't hit puberty and I don't think I'm going to hit puberty till like ninth grade. So most of these kids have hit puberty. So this whole experience, I'm going through the line, looking at these kids. They're definitely much more well developed than I am. I'm starting to sort of shrink down into my underwear, like just sort of try to disappear in the only bit of clothes that I have. Um, get to the doctor. You know, he's sweaty. It's North Carolina. It's humid. He does his thing. I get out of there. And at that moment, I say to myself, I am never experiencing that again. Ever. That's never, ever happening. That kind of experience inside of me, and, and I've had a long time now to process that, but the experience that happened inside of me was an, a knowledge that I was super different and, a, and this really like uncomfortable feeling like everybody knew that and they were looking at me. Now, none of those kids had those thoughts. I'm pretty sure they didn't care. They don't even remember me. But I had that experience. And that became a defining narrative in my life. A narrative that subconsciously plays itself out. So that any time that I have an experience where I feel different, where I feel like everyone's looking at me, where I feel exposed, I immediately have this like instinctual thing that says, I need to get out of here now. And it can be from a high level scary thing, you know, to just something really simple. But once those emotional feelings happen, once all of a sudden I'm back, in junior high, in the locker room. Now, I'm not always conscious of that, but it's still playing. And that is my old person narrative. And I, I live in that narrative to the point where it produced a lot of anxiety for me as a young adult. And it's still something that I wrestle with. So I will find myself thinking, oh, I'm different. And as soon as I think that or I feel exposed as different, I think I have to get out of here. I have to leave. I have to escape. I, do, I don't want these friends. I don't want this place. I don't want... And I have a very drastic, not very logical response to whatever the situation is. Okay? I live a lot in that narrative. That's my old person. Now, all of you have a narrative like that. And it's not just that one moment. That got reinforced over and over again in my life. And so now it replays in the different things that I do in life. I have an old narrative. You have old narratives. Maybe you're not aware of them, but I hope tonight that maybe you'll at least begin to think about it. Now, Abram and Sarai have an old narrative too. And that narrative is an idol-worshipping narrative. You see, Abram's father was an idol-worshipper. And most likely Sarai's father was an idol-worshipper. Now, what do idol-worshippers, what's their requirement? Well, to be an idol-worshipper, you have to do all the work because idols don't do anything. Right? They sit there and you carve them. And then you put all the stuff in front of them. And you do all the right chance to get things that you want. And everything you're doing, you're trying to do it so that you won't die, or that you'll have children, or all the things will work out for you. And so idol worshippers have two kinds of things happening, two narratives happening in their life. Number one, it's magical thinking. Right? They think that something magical will happen if they do the right things. And the second narrative that they have going is it's all 
up to them. They have to do it. Now, you see this play out in this little narrative. It's been ten years. God told Abram, I will make you a great nation. Note, I will make you. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And then as a result, you will bless people. But for ten years, nothing's happened. And so when you're at a place where some you have no children, and the, when you die, your servant's going to inherit stuff, and you have nobody to hand things off to, you begin to kind of freak out, and you think, maybe this is our job. Maybe we need to figure this out. And so you begin to live in the old way. It's all up to us. And if we do the right things in the right way, maybe we can make this all work and you can still be a father of many nations. And so what do they do? They they make up a plan. We're going to give my servant and all this stuff is going to happen. Well, what happens? Okay, they attempt to make a great name and a great nation for themselves. And out of that, they're supposed to get blessing. But what happens? They're fighting with each other. So there's no blessing happening there. And then the people who are outside of their nationality, the Egyptian slave, she's not getting blessed. She's having such a miserable time and she's being so miserable that she leaves and almost dies. If you read the rest of the story, God has to save her. So instead of God blessing them and everything working out right, they took it into their own hands. They play out their own narrative and everything goes bad. And here's the thing. When you and I choose to live in the old stories, right? the places, and this is how you know if you're your old story. It's really easy. Think back over your life and the places where you say, I will never experience this. This will hap- never happen this way. We must do things this way for this, that. Like when you have emphatic statements that you, that you made, vows that you made in your life, that's the place where your, your old narrative is going to come up and, 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 um, kind of get you. Okay? Um, so that's where we have Abram and Sarai. Now we're going to jump to chapter 17. And we're going to look how God enters into this after they've messed things up. And see how it works. So verse, chapter 17, verse 1 starts like this. And this is going to kind of help us engage one another too as we imitate God. But it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your number. Now covenant is just a mutual agreement between two people. But look how God introduces himself. So Abram has already messed everything up. They've already kind of ruined their family dynamics. And God shows up and he says, this is who I am. I'm God Almighty. And then he has a little tagline. Walk before me blamelessly. Now, as you offer blessing to people, and it's not, you know, it's really hard to see how we live in our, our own old narratives, the ones that are destructive to us, but it's not too hard to see the ones that other people are living in, right? The first thing that you can do in calling someone out and telling them who they are as they're wrestling with life and struggling and feeling like things are not going right and they're feel, they feel just kind of trapped is to do what God says here. 
God announces himself, and your job is to reorient people. I used to work in psych, in geriatric psych, and one of the groups I got to run was reality orientation. So you have a bunch of 65 and older people sitting around, and you ask them, who's the president? You know who the president usually is? Ronald Reagan. Because uh, <laughs> that's who they remember. Because um, one of their peers. And this was a long time ago. But that's, but you know, the funny thing is, yeah, that's kind of funny. Reality orientation for people who struggle with just knowing who they are. But that's all of us. We lose track of reality so quickly. And it's not really being trite to remind people that it's God Almighty. It's not a bunch of other little gods. It's not all the other things you're chasing after. God is the Almighty God, the one and only. And if you walk blamelessly in front of Him, if you engage Him, then He's going to engage you. We need to remind each other of that. That's the first part of calling each other out, is to remind each other of who God is, to refocus. Um, and, and really, all of us come into this room not very focused. I need you to remind me of who God is. We need to constantly be reminded of that. Verse 3, it says, Abram fell face down, which is a good thing, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. So, God does something really interesting here. God renames Abram to Abraham. Now, as a kid, I didn't think that was very creative. I mean, if you're going to rename somebody, come on. Put a ham on the end of them, what's up with that? But, yep. But what God does here is really fascinating because Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of many nations. And really, we actually don't know what Abram or Abraham really means. We know it has something to do with father. But the reason that we can say it means father of many nations is because God tells him what his name means. He fills it out. And so the really cool thing here is that when God names Abraham, he's saying, I am giving you a name that every single time somebody calls you it, it will be a reminder of the promise I made you. And that promise was that you didn't have to do it. That I would make you a great nation and that I would give you a great name and I would bless you. And that out of that blessing would happen. I'm going to give you a name that reminds you of who you are. Now you might wonder like, well, how do we do that? Well, let me kind of give you a story of how that happened to me this week. I was uh, texting back and forth with one of the leaders here at the village and she was asking me a bunch of questions. And at one point, I asked her, why are you asking these questions? Um, and she said, back to it, because something along the lines, because you're the pastor and you're really wise about these things. Now, 
what she did for me as I'm thinking about answering questions is she gave me my name and she told me what my name means. She gave me an invitation to live into who I am. She said, you're the pastor and you're wise. She said who I was. And that's the thing that you and I are called to do. As we look at one another and as we orient each other and say, God is is the one in charge and it's not about you, this is who you are and this is how I see it play out. Now you know I, I tried to offer that to Corey today. When I said, Corey, you're a chaplain, and out of this verse it says that you are a person who looks around, sees what needs to be done, and does it. Like you, you recognize the time and you act. That's telling Corey who he is. Now there are lots of different ways to do that. But one of the ways that you and I can invite people to live into our new selves and a whole new narrative is to speak out how we experience one another as we're loved by one another and as we see each other interact. You can't do that outside of community. You have to know each other and you have to know each other's stories and you have to really look past one another's annoying habits and tics and ways of talking and ways of relating in order to what? Be able to call them out. So you have to truly see them and you have to be willing to know them so that you can name them like God named Abram. Now let's see how he names Sarai. Verse 15, we'll jump forward. It says, God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael, and this is the son that had come from the servant, might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. That's really interesting. I'm pretty sure that God only names two people in the Bible. Isaac, like, and doesn't change their name. Isaac and Jesus, right? Isaac means laughter. God's like, this is the name you're going to give the son who's going to bless everyone, right? So he changes Sarah's name, or Sarah's name. Sarah means probably princess or my princess. And Sarah probably means queen. Like that her name is a reminder that all of of the blessing of Abraham is going to come out of her. Like she's the queen of it all. Um, And so every time someone calls her Sarah, she's reminded of her part in the blessing. Now the crazy thing is, it hasn't happened yet. And this is really important because our life is always playing out. And the way that God interacts with us is very relational. He just doesn't drop the blessing on us. He's interacting with us and engaging us and working with the, our, our foibles and all the different things. But what he does in the midst of everything, in our journey and in our rebellion, is he keeps inserting himself and naming us and calling us out and telling us what's going to happen and telling us who we are. And as Jesus' people, that is our role for one another and for the world, is to 
recognize people's stories, recognize where they're caught up in their old narratives, and begin to call them out, to begin to say who they are. Now, I'm going to give you an assignment tonight. And normally if I gave you an assignment, I said, okay, what I want you to do is go around and call people out and bless them. I don't know if any of you would do that. So here's how I'm going to do it. What I want you to do is initiate that tonight. So I want you to, whoever you sit down with for dinner, I want you to say, who do you see me as? Who am I in the kingdom of God? I want you to give people an opportunity so that they don't have to come up to you and say, okay, let me tell you what I see. Sit down, and here's a, here's a good experiment. If you're really brave, sit down with somebody you don't talk to very much at the village. Fortunately, tonight we're, we're kind of smaller, so it should be a good, intimate time to do that. So, my assignment is, sit down with somebody and ask them, who am I? Now, if you're new, you're not, you may not be able to do that, but heck, some people here have the gift of discernment. You could ask them, and I bet you they'd hear something from God to tell you. But um, that's, your, that's your invitation, is to ask people who you are in the kingdom of God and let them speak over you and name you. But one last other thing that I'd like you to kind of think about, and that is we all do live in these very negative, controlling narratives. Sometimes it's very much in our subconscious. But once you can get a hold of those moments in your life where you made commitments or vows or you had an experience in your life that kind of transforms the way you look at things and not in a good way, you can begin to undo that. And you can begin to ask people to help you undo that. So I would also ask you just to think this week, okay, what are some of my old narratives? What, what, where are the places that are... I kind of live in a destructive mode so that you can begin to um, repent of those things. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you uh, for this community. Thank you um, that you, through your cross, have given us a great opportunity uh, to walk in your footsteps and to bless one another and to speak truth to one another. And I ask that you would Uh, Give us as a community the courage uh, tonight to ask people, who do you see me? How do you see me in the kingdom of God? Who do you see me as? Um, And Jesus, I just ask all those things in your name. Amen.